At First Baptist Church of Irving, one of our key commitments as a people is to, in everything we do, exalt Christ. Everything we do, we want to point to Jesus. When we gather in this room, the songs that we sing, the fellowship that we have, we want to be sure that it points you to Jesus. When you're in a, a small group on Sunday morning, when you're in the preschool, right? The goal is not just to be bounced on a knee or eat some animal crackers. The point is to be exposed to the reality of Jesus Christ even at a young age. We want every corner of this building to be filled with people who are encouraging each other to look to Christ alone for hope and salvation. It's a key commitment for us. And that commitment did not just arrive out of thin air. We hold to that commitment as a people because we believe it is a commitment that is taught in Scripture. The very nature of Scripture itself, the way that Scripture is designed, is from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation to point us to the true hero of the Bible, Jesus Christ. As we've seen together this fall, all the Bible is pointing us to Jesus. Yes, there are a number of fascinating and incredible stories throughout the Bible, but each one of those stories is meant to prepare us to understand the larger story of Jesus. The story of Adam, as you may remember, was meant to help us understand in greater ways the story of Jesus. The story of Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, among others. All of these stories, incredible and magnificent as they are on their own, are sections, chapters, of a larger story the Bible is trying to unfold before us that, that shows us the sovereignty of God orchestrating our reconciliation and the reconciliation of all things through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when we see how the Bible functions in this way, how can we not be committed to that as a people? How can we not speak in every part of our life the idea that Christ must be central when so often God has shown us that He is the most important focus for our lives. We want to be about the exaltation of Jesus because here's what we know. When we consider Christ, when we're pointed to Christ, it stirs our hearts. It, it causes us to want to devote ourselves in greater ways to this God who has so incredibly saved us. When we consider how lost we were, when we consider how hopeless we were, when we consider our sin and how, how dirty we, be, we were before a holy and righteous God and that through no merit of our own, God graciously acted to rescue us when we had no hope by sending His one and only Son to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserved to die so that we could have the life that He secured for us in His resurrection. And when we consider that God had been sovereignly working that moment, all of history working toward that moment for our good, how could we not be overwhelmed by that kind of love? How could we not be overwhelmed by that kind of grace and mercy? How could our hearts not be stirred with affection for our God when we consider Christ? And so as a church, we want to follow the example of the Bible. We want to, in everything that we do, point back to Jesus. And that's why it's such an important thing for us to read the Bible that way and why 
we have been considering Old Testament figures and, and learning about them, not just to hear their story, but to consider how their story points us to Jesus, because we believe that biblical conviction that's evidenced in the Old Testament, evidenced throughout Scripture, should format our entire life. And so we're going to do that a little bit more as we finish out our year, because we so passionately want you to know why we are serious about exalting Jesus, why we're going to follow the example of the Bible and allow everything that we do to point to him. And what we're going to do for the remainder of the year is to focus on one character a little bit more in-depthly than we focused on the ones in our previous series. We want to look at the story of David. And we want to dive a little bit deeper into the, the story of David, a central figure in the Old Testament, and consider how the full story of David is meant to prepare us for the story of Christ. How the story of David is meant to point us to Jesus, to exalt him. So today we're going to begin in the beginning. 1 Samuel 16, when Daniel is anointed, or Daniel, David is anointed king. Let me give you a little bit of background so we can be situated in the, the larger history of the people of God leading to this point. People of God have entered the land of promise. And they've lived through the period of the judges. Now, during the time of the judges, God was seen to be the king over all of Israel. But when there was a threat against the people of God, when there was a need to have their hearts redirected back to the Lord, God would raise up an individual for a, a period of time to help defend or redeem his people. But once that person passed away, there was no lineage. There was no king to follow in their steps. They ruled for a period of time for a specific purpose, and then they were done. Because, again, God was supposed to be seen as king over all of Israel. Samuel is one of these judges, raised up by God for a particular purpose in a particular time to help God's people return from an extended period of rebellion. We see in Judges 21-25 that the people of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. They did evil because there was no king to help them or to, to guide them back to the Lord. You see, the people of God had lost sight of their one true ruler because they could not see God physically. Because not, he was in a body in front of them. They began to think that their actions had no eternal significance and that God would not judge them. He was out of sight and therefore out of Mind, but God was not having any of that. And so he raised up Samuel, who functions in the Old Testament like a second Moses. He's a prophet, priest, and judge. And he begins to realign the heart of God's people back to God. But as we come to 1 Samuel 16, Samuel's getting old. He's old. And the people of God are wondering, what, what's going to happen to us after you leave. You've, you've served us well, Samuel, but who's going to lead us after you die? And they say to him before the Lord, we don't want a temporary judge anymore. We want a king. And let me be clear. The desire for a king from God's people is not necessarily a bad thing. 
It's the reason they want a king that's an issue for the Lord. Listen to how they speak to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5. Behold, Samuel, you are old. <laughs> mm. That's an encouraging word from the Lord right there, right? <laughs> and your sons do not walk in your ways. So you're about to leave. Your sons don't follow the Lord. So appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now notice, the request was not this. Samuel, we see what happens whenever we don't have a king. We are broken, sinful people, and our hearts turn away from the Lord. We begin to pursue selfish pleasure. We begin to lose our confidence in the Lord to protect us and lead us uniquely. And so we need somebody to follow after you to to keep our focus on God, to keep us committed to being the set-apart people that God has called us to so that His glory can be shown to the nations through us. That was not their request. Why did they want a king? To be like the other nations. That's an issue for a set-apart people. They were called not to be like the other nations. They were called to be different. To sit under the favor and the blessing of the the one true God of the universe. And as a distinct set-apart people, give evidence to the rest of the world of why he was worthy of their devotion, why he was worthy of their worship. They were called to be different, but they longed to be like everyone else. And of course, that leads to some very dangerous consequences as we see throughout the scripture. But God does grant their request because in his sovereignty, he had already planned for there to be a king over his people. So he gives them a king to rule over them. A king, the first king, made a lot of sense in the eyes of the people. His name is Saul. And he literally stood head and shoulders above everyone else in Israel. His stature was stunning. He was an overwhelming presence, and yet despite all of his physical giftedness, he failed as a king. Utterly failed because he did not trust the Lord. He did not seek to obey the Lord. And when his sin was called out, he did not repent. He made excuses. He does not lead the people of God back to God as he was designed to do. In fact, he failed in almost every requirement that was outlined in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20 for the king of Israel. Listen to this. God's saying to his people, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. This is 17, Deuteronomy 17, 14. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And listen to how different this king is supposed to be from other kings, like the kings that other nations have. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart 
turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. He shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted above his other brothers and that he might not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Well, if you read the story of Saul before 1 Samuel 16, you'll see that in so many ways, Saul fails to meet those requirements for a godly king. And because Saul does not take heed of the word of God because he does not obey, God rejects him in order to prepare the people of God for a better king. A king who sees as God sees, a king who values what God values. You see, the rejection of Saul allows for a better king. God allows Saul to take the throne of Israel on purpose because he wants to show his people Something about Saul that they missed in order to prepare them for a surprising king who would lead them into greater victory, who would lead them into greater blessing, who would honor the Lord and have a heart like his. And the choosing of this king, the surprising king, is the focus of our text today. Let's read 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 13 together. Here's what the word of God says. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. See, it seems like Samuel's been grieving for a long time. At the end of chapter 15, once the Lord had rejected Saul and Samuel confronted Saul, Samuel's grief begins in verse 35. And some months later, Samuel is still in grief. And God says, how long will you grieve? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm going to send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he's going to kill me. Apparently, whatever road he had to take to get from where he was to where he was going had to pass by Saul. And Saul already knows the kingdom has been taken from him and a new king will be appointed. And so if Saul sees Samuel with his, you know, anointing horn, I think I want one of those, right? And says, hey, where are you, are you going to go anoint somebody to be king? He's going to say, well, you can't go because I'm going to kill you. So Samuel's nervous. So what am I going to do? The Lord says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And when you get there, invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I'm going to show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded. He came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And this is a very legitimate question because if you've read the end of 15, you know that Samuel, even though he is old, is a bad dude. Because Saul did not kill the king of the Amalekites named Agag, Samuel does that himself. And as we see in verse 33, Samuel hacks this man to pieces before the Lord. 
So, don't mess with Samuel, okay? He can wield a sword. So, okay, Samuel, I, are you coming in peace? Because I don't want to end up in pieces, right? And the Lord said to Samuel, oh, wait, no, and then he said, I do come in peace. I come to sacrifice to the Lord, verse 5. So consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. So he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, when they came, he looked on Eliab, the oldest of his sons, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. I've not chosen him. Why? For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, well, there's the youngest. But behold, he's out keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, but we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent, brought him in. Now he was ruddy, which I think is reddish somehow. And he had beautiful eyes, which means he was beautiful to look at. He was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel rose up and went to remind. Notice verse 14. The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. A king is chosen. Now what's interesting to me is who is the, the focus of this passage in 1 Samuel 16 or, or who God is doing the work on in this passage. I've always read this passage with David in mind. But it's very clear that Samuel is the one who God is concerned about in 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 13. And I think it's on purpose because Samuel is a representative of the people of Israel and God needs to do some work in Samuel's heart so that he can be ready to receive a surprising king. And that's supposed to paint a picture for us because in the same way that Samuel needed some work done in his heart to receive a surprising king. The people of God, whom he represented, needed some work done in their own heart to receive this surprising king. And so I want to consider two challenges, two declarations that, that God makes to Samuel that are meant to challenge his expectations, that are meant to challenge his focus to prepare him to receive the king that God was about to choose. And as we consider that, I want you to see how indirectly God is challenging the people of God. Challenging them in the same way to consider their own hearts and whether the shortcomings we see in Samuel are shared by them because if they're not changed, if they're not challenged to see things differently, to, to trust in God in greater ways, they may miss out on the blessing of God. So let's consider these these two declarations that are giving, given to Samuel and how through those declarations, God is challenging his heart. First declaration we find in verse one, where God says to Samuel, hey, fill up your horn and go. 
Get your horn. Fiddle it with oil and go. You see, in the beginning of our passage, Samuel is grieving. He's grieving over Saul. And the language of that grief in the Old Testament is like the grief you would experience at a death, at a funeral. Samuel sees what's happened with Saul like a death. He's grieving over the failure of this king, and he's grieving over the loss of what he thought Saul could be for his people. Things did not turn out as Samuel expected. His reign, or Saul's reign, was a a complete failure. And I'm sure there are a lot of things that are filling up Samuel's mind. I'm sure that Samuel is concerned about the future of Israel, right? I'm about to to pass from this life into the next. Who's going to take care of Israel? Like my sons, they don't follow after my ways. I thought Saul was going to be the one to take Israel forward. What's going to happen if I'm not here to take care of God's people. I'm sure he's grieving over the loss of his king, right? When you read the the chapters directly before 1 Samuel 16, it's very clear that Samuel wants Saul to succeed. He, He begs Saul to change his ways, to listen to the word of God, to be obedient. And the first time that God says to Samuel, I'm rejecting Saul, Samuel gets angry before the Lord. And he wrestles with him all night because he knows what this king could mean for Israel. So I know he's grieving over the loss of this king and he's he's grieving over Saul's failure to repent when confronted with his sin. And I'm sure in, in part, he's grieving over his role in all of this. Could he have done more to help Saul be successful? Could he have done more to secure Israel's future? But in the midst of all that grief that has been consuming him for months, God speaks to him and says, why are you grieving over that which I have rejected? Why are you you still grieving over that which I have rejected? You see, a lot of the grief that Samuel experienced is normal, right? There's a proper place for grief in our life. When when things don't go as we hoped, when, when something significant like Saul's kingship over Israel was, when that train comes off the tracks, there's an appropriate place for grief. Here's the problem, though. You can't stay there. And Samuel was staying there for months. His His grief had turned to hopelessness. His grief had turned into despair, and it revealed something about his heart. Samuel, who are you really trusting in? You're worried about the future of Israel. You're worried about what's going to happen after you leave. It's very evident, Samuel, that you had placed your confidence in the future of Israel in the hands of Saul. But guess what? Saul's a flawed, broken man. And he's going to mess up. And let's also remember Saul, Samuel. Saul did not gather this people from nowhere, bring them together in the bowels of Egypt, 
Saul did not miraculously deliver them from Egypt and bring them through the wilderness to the land of promise. Saul did not one by one run out the the foreign peoples of this land to give them this land of promise. It was not Saul who orchestrated and established his people. It was God. It is not Saul who is responsible for them. It is ultimately the Lord your God. So a man may fail, but listen, God ultimately is responsible for this people and he will never fail them. You've placed your trust in a man to do what only God can do for his people. And your devastation is a reflection of a misplaced trust. His his overwhelming grief revealed something about his heart that in many ways Saul was the hope of Israel for Samuel. And certainly Israel felt that way too. This king was their hope. But God reminded them, no, 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 listen. That whole period of the judges was a reminder to you that I am your one true king. And even when I give you a king, even when I allow a king to rule over you, they are not the primary king of Israel. I am. I'm responsible. Place your trust here. Samuel, you've got to remember, God is in control. He is the one who will work for the good of Israel. Too much despair reveals a lack of trust in God on your part and too much trust in Saul. Remember, I'm going to take care of my people as I promised you I would. That's the first declaration that God makes to Samuel to work on his heart. Quit being overwhelmed by despair. You've got work to do. Get up, take your horn, go anoint the next king that I've already prepared. Second declaration comes in verse 7. When God says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance. Samuel has obeyed the Lord at this point. He's gone to Bethlehem. He's gone to the house of Jesse, and he's sizing up the sons of Jesse one by one. And when Eliab comes forward, this is the the flesh kick that happens in Samuel. Oh, yeah. Eliab's a guy, right? He's a giant of a man. Surely, he is the one who God has set apart to rule over Israel. But notice how almost immediately God begins to correct that understanding. Verse 7, Samuel, do not look at his appearance or on his height because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, Samuel was using the same old logic that brought about Saul as king to choose the next king. Saul made sense. Saul looked like a king. He had that physical, intimidating presence. But as many physical qualities as he had, he lacked the one thing that God valued above all. And that was a heart that was devoted to him. 
Israel wanted a king like every other nation. And God says to them, no, you don't need a king like every other nation has. You need something different because they are serving someone different. Any nation could have a a king that's a giant. But you need something different. You need a king with a heart for God. I've allowed you to have Saul to show you that you need a different kind of king. A king that will lead you into obedience. Not a king who will lead you to disobedience. You see, the stature of men is unimportant when God is on their side. I don't care what strength that guy has. Has no match for the Lord. And if God is giving strength, then who on earth can stand against him? See, God's doing some work in Samuel's heart. You're impressed by the wrong thing, Samuel. Even as a prophet, even as a priest of God's people, as a judge, you're still being impressed by the wrong thing. You're not seeing what I'm seeing. That's a bad place for you to be. It's a bad place for God's people to be because when you place your trust in the wrong place, when you rely on man more than God, it's a recipe for disaster. Your hope, the hope of Israel, has to be in me alone. And you need a king who will constantly remind you of where your hope is properly placed. You see, God will always work in a way to realign the heart of his people back to him. And he will often choose surprising leaders to remind you that it is him who ultimately leads his people. See, on the face of it, David makes no sense. Why would God choose David? I mean, he's a handsome dude, but he's the youngest. He's not the biggest. And worst of all, he's a musician. Right? I mean... He plays a miniature harp. Let's go to the battlefield. Let's go. Oh no! Let's run because of the sound of the mini harp. Nothing about David makes sense. And yet, despite all that he lacks, he has the one thing that God wants. A heart like his. Remember when Samuel first talks to Saul, or or in the beginning part of of him talking to Saul about God removing his kingdom in chapter 13, verse 14, he says to Saul, now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This guy, David, he may not look the part, but he's exactly what God wants. And it's precisely because he does not look at the part that God is choosing him to remind you. He may, he may be a model. He may not look like a model warrior, but I'm going to do something through him that he could not do on his own precisely because I want you to remember who's doing it. It's not David. Just like it wasn't Saul. Just like it wasn't Moses. It's me. His surprising choice for king is meant to remind his people of that. Samuel, place your hope in the Lord and trust that he will always act in a way to bring about his glory and your good. 
David, because he has the heart of God, will lead his people to seek my glory above everything else. Trust me. Trust me to do what is right. Some heart surgery, right? And Samuel, a reminder that you're never too old to learn something from the Lord, right? And I got to think that there's a lot we can learn. In the same way that the people of God then had something to learn through God's work in Samuel, I think we have something to learn today. And I just want to ask three probing questions this morning that come from the text to see if there are any issues in our hearts like there were in Samuel's. To allow the Lord to prepare us for an even more surprising king. First question. Are you overwhelmed by ungodly grief? Do you find yourself in a, a very similar situation that Samuel felt his, had found himself in? Say it a different way. Do you trust in the promises of God to sustain you when disappointment comes? In the course of our lives and the course of the people in this room, there are going to be things that happen that don't make sense. There are going to be things that happen that did not happen the way that we wanted them to. And while there is an appropriate place for grief in those moments, let me also remind you that prolonged grief in the face of disappointment can reveal something about your heart and who you ultimately Trust. In this case, Samuel placed way too much hope in Saul. And as a result, when the Lord removed him, he was overwhelmed by despair. But again, Saul was never meant to be the hope of Israel. He was always serving under the authority of God. God is the one who would ultimately care for his people. But this devastation, this overwhelming grief, reveals something in Samuel's heart about who he ultimately trusted. He trusted man more than he trusted God. Now let's think about how that arises in our hearts today. Do you trust the Lord to take care of your life? Do you trust the Lord to sustain this world? Do you trust the Lord for your daily provision, your daily bread? Do you trust the Lord to accomplish the work of the gospel? Do you trust the Lord to sustain you anytime you feel the brokenness of this world. Because friends, we will always feel it. The question is, will we be overwhelmed by that brokenness or the promise that should sustain us? Because listen, Samuel knew another king was coming. God had already told him and he had already declared to Saul that a, a better king was coming. Verse 28, the Lord has torn this kingdom from you. This is verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 28. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. He's given it to a neighbor of yours who is better. Better. So why is Samuel sitting in grief? Yes, it's a tragedy what happened to Saul, but God has not forgotten about his people and he's going to raise up a king who is better, right? Yes, this was terrible, but there's coming something that is better. So why are you sitting in grief? Get off all your keister, get your anointing horn and go find the king, right? 
Is keister a bad word? No, sorry. I get so, when I use like slang sometimes, like I get nervous that, get off of your rear ends and go. Okay. <laughs> so, have you ever been overwhelmed like that? I remember, um, I was thinking earlier, I, I don't ever share the story, so I'm going to share it today. I felt convicted from the Lord to do it earlier. Not many of you know this, but um, the first church I ever worked at, I resigned from because a theological disagreement arose between my pastor and myself. And the Lord was forming some, some things in my life. I was reading the Bible and I was discovering some things and I felt convicted about certain theological truths. And as they kind of came out, they became a concern for my senior pastor. And as we walked through them, it just became evident that we could no longer work in ministry together. Now, what's interesting about that time is that that was uh, very formative years of my life. I was working at a church in Baton Rouge that uh, the Lord called me to ministry in. This pastor in my life was like a father figure to me in the faith. I had just visions and dreams about staying at this church for a very long time. I was going to seminary in New Orleans. I could stay there. I could, could plant my life there. So much of my calling into ministry was attached to this church and attached to this person. And then in the course of a week, everything changed. No longer was I serving at that church. No longer was I serving under his direction. Every vision I had for my life, even in ministry, was gone. And I, I entered into a, a, a season of very intense depression because here I am going to seminary. I'm going to seminary ultimately to work at this church and to serve with him. But it seems like the whole point of me going to seminary is suddenly gone. I'm not working at the church anymore. I'm not serving. And I remember in that season of grief, something very similar to what happened to Samuel happened to me. Now, I don't, the Lord didn't audibly speak to me, but I remember something similar happening. Like, Jared, who are you serving? Right? Are you serving that church? Is, is your whole point in, in serving in ministry to serve that church? Or are you serving that man or are you serving me? And do you trust that I'm not finished with you yet? That I will use this moment of despair to help you move to something better. You see, I had placed my focus in ministry as a pastor on the wrong thing. My desire was to work for that church. My desire was to work for that person. My desire was not to serve the Lord, not fully. And the Lord used that moment to take some idols out of my heart and to push me back to him. And I gotta say, guys, I wouldn't be the person I am today without that season. The Lord reoriented my heart to him. Here's the question. Are you consumed? Are you overwhelmed with ungodly grief today? Let me just remind you. There's a better day coming. 
God's not finished with you yet. Here's the reality, guys. People will fail. People will fail you. Pastors will disappoint you. Wives will disappoint you. Husbands will disappoint you. Parents will disappoint you. People die. People are diagnosed with diseases every day. God's people mess up. Governments, elected officials, they fail. That's not a revelation, I don't think. Some oppress. Some come against the work of God. And while all of those things can be discouraging, and there's an appropriate place for grief, the question is, is God's promise sustaining you in the midst of it? Or are you so overwhelmed by that situation that it's revealing something about your heart? Would you let the Lord do some work in your life today? Secondly, second question, are you striving to see and value what God values? Do you see as God sees? You see, listen, when we step into the reality of Jesus Christ, we become aware of a new reality, a greater reality that is guiding the whole of creation, that God is working all things for his glory and the good of those who are called according to his purpose. When we, when we step into the life of Christ, there's a spiritual reality that's opened for us. That it's not just physical anymore. There's also the spiritual reality that's working behind the scenes. That God is moving things toward his desired ends. Working for his glory and calling us to work in the same way. Here's the question we have to ask ourselves, though. Are, are we seeing as God wants us to see? Or are we still valuing the things that we used to value before Christ? Do we see people differently? Do we see money differently? Do we see our houses differently? Do we see jobs differently? Do we see our marriages differently? Do we see our kids differently? Do we see the world, government differently because of the work of Christ within us? Or are we still looking with fleshly eyes? The reality is, guys, you know this. Many times we still value people because of what the world values in them. We still value them because they look good. We still value them because they have power or they have money and we think that they can do something for us and we cast other people away. Because on the surface, they don't know they can benefit us. But what if one of those people is the next Billy Graham? What if one of those people is meant to be a king? Surprising king. For the glory of God. I was watching Facebook yesterday and... Um, I saw that Kanye West was in the Harris County prisons around Houston sharing the gospel with some prisoners. Now listen, I'm always nervous about using modern day examples of transformative faith because their whole story hasn't been written yet and who knows what's happening in Kanye's life. But all I know is that what I have seen and witnessed over the the past few months, as Kanye's dropped this new album, as Christian, as he's been going around talking about Jesus, there seems like some, some real faith there. Now, he may not be able to express it in perfect theological terms, but how many of us would be able to do that just coming to know Christ, right? But there seems to be something happening in the life of Kanye West that the Lord is redeeming for his glory. Now, think about how many of us would have considered Kanye to be a person that the Lord would use in that way. Even just a year ago, right? I mean, 
When you listen to his albums, I mean, they are filled with materialism, objectification of women, so many things that are contrary to God. And yet, while many of us would have cast him aside saying there's no hope for a God like that, God did not. At least it seems like it. And now, he's using the audience of millions of people and the fame that he's achieved through fleshly means to no longer trumpet or champion materialism, objectification of women. He's using them to trumpet the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's surprising, right? And I think the surprising is on purpose because there's no way to explain that change and a man like Kanye except for the power of the living God opening his eyes to the truth of Christ. And we should pray for him that the Lord would sustain him, that there are going to be people who come after him for the wrong reasons, right? We pray that faith would take hold in his heart and he'd be able to continue testifying to the glory of Jesus Christ. How many of you are surprising? Aren't we all? There's no way to account for the change that's happening in our lives except for God that's on purpose. God always chooses the surprising things to make sure that he gets the glory. Remember, Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. What seems logical, right, to make sense does not always bring God glory. We've got to learn to see things differently as God's people. Finally, third question I want to ask us this morning, are you seeking a more surprising king? As we think about how the choice of David prepares us for the choice of Jesus. You know, the nature of God's choice of David is surely surprising. And his, his kingdom is a great kingdom, but I want to declare to you today that David is not the greatest king in the Bible, and he is not the most surprising king in the Bible. There is a greater, more surprising king who is coming, and his name is Jesus. Because as great as David was, he was also flawed. And we're going to see these flaws unfold over the, the coming weeks together. And all of those flaws, as great as he was, are on purpose. Because they're, they're to stir in us a desire for a greater king who will rule over his people with greater devotion, always seeking the good of his people. And he's a more surprising king than David because he was born to poor parents in a small inn in Bethlehem, a manger for a bed. He was from a nowhere town born to unimportant people. And yet from those humble beginnings, God exalted him and gave him the name that's above every other name. A more surprising king is coming who will usher in a better kingdom. A kingdom that will last forever. Here's the good news for you today. The surprising King Jesus has made a way for you to enter into his kingdom. He gave his life so that you could be saved from your sin and become a child of God. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. You can be transferred from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life and reign with him 
forever. We would love to give you the opportunity in just a minute. We'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front talk to you more about Jesus and how he saved you. For the rest of us, how are our hearts today? As citizens in God's kingdom, are we trusting him? Or are we overwhelmed by our grief to the point where we can't even remember the promises of God? And are we striving to see what God sees and value what he values above everything else? Because in so doing, we secure the glory of God. And are we longing for a greater king who will come one day and take us home? Friends, let's see things in a way that honors the Lord and let's be found faithful as his people until he returns to take us home. Amen? Wherever you are, you bow your head, spend some time before the Lord, asking him to help you know how to respond. Father, help us. Help us to place our faith in you. Help us to continually place our faith in you when things get tough. Help us to be more overwhelmed by your promises than our grief. And help us to value what you value. Because only when those things happen can we find the glory of Christ, a more surprising king. Help us to know how to respond, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.